1: Welcome listeners to another episode of the Oxygen Starved Podcast, where we bring you your ABCs, adventures, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet here in beautiful Mono County. I'm your co-host, Stacy, and with me is...
0: Uh, your co-host, Christopher, and with both of us, as always, is producer Doug. Producer hey, Doug. Doug.
1: Hi, Doug. Hey, guys. How you doing?
0: Uh, Ho, ho, ho.
1: <laughs> okay, we are in it. We are in the the holiday season officially. It's after Thanksgiving as we're recording, pre-Christmas. So right. that crazy time of year
0: where traditions come out.
1: Traditions, and we have a tradition today. We are celebrating our 5th year of doing our best of books, and we're really happy to have again with us for the 5th time, Dave Leonard, the owner of the Bookie Joint. Hi, Dave. Hi, Stacey and
2: Christopher and Doug. It's <laughs> wonderful to be here again.
1: It is always wonderful to have you here with us for this episode. We look forward to it. It's always such a good time, and we're really happy to have you here again.
0: It well, does, does not feel like five years. Does it feel no. like five years, Dave?
1: Um,
2: no, It's uh, it feels more like six or seven <laughs> <laughs> no, The I... I, I I enjoy it more every time, um, so it's it is very nice to be here. And
1: it's like old I, hat for you now. Mm-hmm.
2: And I I like your suggestion of three books instead of five. I think it, I think that way we can really pare it down to the very best.
1: <laughs> it was hard. I don't know about you guys, but I had a I had a hard time choosing. We did have the so the qualifications for our listeners is we have to choose three of our favorite books of the year that we read this year that were published in this calendar year, 2023. Right. And that, that made it challenging, but it really helped me to narrow down the the books that I read or the books that I chose.
0: Well, and going from five to three adds a little bit more pressure. Don't you think like, I uh, I didn't lock mine in until a couple of days ago.
2: You know, I thought it would be easier because there, there would be less work to do, but I, it, I just put it off for longer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, you know, it,
2: it actually didn't work. And so if, if you say we're going to do five next year, if if you'll have me back next year, that of might make it, I might actually get it done.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Start in March, yeah. right? record our reading.
1: Well, and I think it makes choosing three each makes for a, a nicer length episode yeah. for our listeners. So you can actually get it all in in one trip someplace <laughs> rather than have to, oh, I'm going to cut it off here and come, back to, come it. back to it. So listeners, we hope that you appreciate the going from five to three. Let us know what you think because we we want to meet your needs
0: yeah absolutely.
1: So, so we'll we'll each we'll each take turns and um tell about the bi- the books that we chose for this year that were published in this year, and Christopher, we're going in alphabetical order. are we? Christopher Dave Stace.:
0: Hey, there we go. Yeah. That works. So once again, listeners, we will you don't have to write these down while you're right. listening. Don't pull over to the side of the road. We will have these listed on our Instagram and our webpage and our Facebook. And you will be able to find these titles in the libraries and of course at Bookie Joint. Yeah. So um and some of you may have found these titles already because they've already come out this year. <laughs> so I will go ahead and kick off my list. And the first book that I'm picking is a novel. It came out way back in January. It came out to glowing reviews pretty much around um, uh, the review universe. Um, And then it kind of, you know, because it comes out in January, it kind of falls beneath the fold on a lot of people's lists to read. It's The World and All That It Holds by Alexander Heyman. Um, Heyman is a... a known writer, he's Bosnian and he's written about upheavals in Sarajevo in the '90s, and he's written a few books that have gotten him nominated for the National Book Award or the National Book Critics Circle Award. So he's he's a literary author who's already out there in the universe, and um, I think he lives with his kids in Princeton or something like that now, um, as they all do. <laughs> And the other interesting thing I learned about him just recently is he was a co-writer on the movie, The Matrix Revolutions. So for those of us who are Matrix fans, you might recognize the name. And he also um, helped write an episode of Sense8 on the Netflix a few years ago. It was a series on Netflix that was kind of popular. So that kind of, if you're familiar with those, that kind of gives you a sense of where he comes from. Um, This book is historical fiction, which is no surprise because I love history. It's an epic saga that begins on the eve of World War I and ends mostly in the communist uprising in China in 1949 with a coda in Jerusalem in 2001. So here's the plot, and I'm not going to give a whole lot away here. You know, the book's been out a year now. Pinto is a pharmacist with an opium addiction issue who witnesses the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand, which of course kicks off World War I in Sarajevo in 1914, right? Um, and then he gets conscripted as a physician um, in... In the war. And there in the trenches, um, Pinto, who is a Sephardic Jew, meets and falls in love with a Muslim officer, Osman, and the two form a bond that outlasts the war multiple prisoner of war camps, Bolshevik uprisings, refugee camps, and even Osman's death. Along the way, Pinto assumes the role of guardian to Osman's daughter, Rahela, as she grows up. So the story kind of just follows these three people. Through. And what really appealed to me about this book, one thing is that we are used to stories from the Western front in World War I. You know, France and the fields and the poppies and all that stuff. So this war story from the Eastern Front into Russia and the Asian steppes and onto China during this period is unique and illuminating. And, you know, Pinto and Osman survived the trenches never to return to Sarajevo. Instead, they have to navigate this post-war deprivation, spies, and Bolsheviks as they leave Eastern Europe across the Caucasus Mountains, Asian steppes, and ultimately Shanghai. Now, it's just, it's epic, right? This is like old school. A lot's going to happen over the decades and a lot of a lot of characters in a lot of places. A little bit about the language and themes of the book, because this is one thing that stood out and, and why I enjoyed it, is Haman, again, who is Bosnian, but he lives in the States, learned English as an adult. So that he wrote this book at all is a feat to me. Because anyone who learns English as an adult, you're already uphill. And, and he
1: wrote it in English? He wrote it in
0: English, wow. yeah. And so he gets, gives each of his main characters very distinct voices and personalities that come across in the writing. And occasionally reviewers will point out some anachronisms or two that pop up because you just didn't know the word for something didn't exist back in 1917 or whatever. Um, but the Guardian reviewer points out that um, Haman's re- readers have to Except unfamiliar vocabulary, this wandering epic of a novel is bound together by recurring motifs. Anecdotes, scraps of poetry and philosophical saws crop up repeatedly, sometimes as simple reprises, sometimes as ironic variations. On those, mo- one of those motifs is the story of Babel. This is a book about language, and its medium is a rich linguistic stew, which I thought was the best encapsulation of the experience of reading this book for people who like language, because I studied language. Right. So, um, that's one of the things that appealed to me. Of course, along the way, the reader learns to care deeply about all three of these characters and the coda at the end suggests it may have been influenced by a true story. Mm. So this is the world and all that it holds by Alexander Hamon. Is it
1: romancy or is it more history? I'm
0: shaking my head. No, oh. it's more history. <laughs> there's, there's romance, there's love in it. Yeah. Um, but it's not like a romance- okay. Novel, right? Um, and in fact, one of the recurring themes is that Pinto, the pharmacist who's conscripted, he has an opium addiction, and so that kind of comes in and out over okay. the course of the decades, um, and and influences the direction of the story.
1: It's good. Good. It sounds it's sounds epic. <laughs> it sounds epic. <laughs>
0: Good because that's what it's intended to. Good. Um, so that's the first one. The second one I, is nonfiction. Uh, this one is Emperor of Rome by Mary Beard. It came out in November. Again, great reviews again, I love history, right? Mary Beard may be familiar to some readers or viewers of documentaries about the Roman classical world. She's the classics editor of the Times Literary Supplement. She writes for a lot of other publications. She's the author of the popular history that came out on Rome, SPQR, a history of the Roman Empire a few years ago, and then followed it up with a book called Women in Power a couple of years later. And for those two, she was also a national book critic, Circle Award nominee. And she's been on all sorts of best of lists. She's the quintessential British historian, meaning she has an encyclopedic understanding of her topics, a really dry sense of humor. Uh And I'm pointing at Dave because he can relate to that. Also a disdain for mainstream interpretations, a quick wit. And in her documentary, she was really fun tennis shoes. She's like one of these crazy historians that is very serious until you look at their feet. And then you realize, yeah, she probably parties a lot. <laughs> so... um
1: What what do you mean her disdain? Oh, I can't remember exactly what you said, her disdain for... Mainstream interpretations. Mainstream interpretations. Can you explain? Yeah. That?
0: You know, there's a number of historians that are coming along now. As more stuff comes out, especially around classical Rome and Greece, mm-hmm. that are reinterpreting what frankly, white middle-aged men have interpreted over the last few hundred years as the meaning of this or that. And these historians are coming at it and saying, no, the language actually says this and it could have been interpreted this other way if you weren't a male, right? Okay. So, um, you know, she just likes to pry these things apart and she's not doing it irresponsibly or Mm -hmm. with a real agenda or anything like that. She's just saying there's another way of looking at things. And also there's just a whole lot of stuff still to be dug up from the Roman Empire. And a lot of that kind of stuff appears in this book, which kind of makes it an update of some of the stuff we've already been taught when we were kids in school in a previous century. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's a nice, thick, juicy steak of a book. It basically focuses um, from the first emperor, Augustus, up a couple centuries, the heyday of Rome. So think like Caligula, Nero, Tiberius, Marcus Aurelius, the ones that we've heard about. Come
1: to know and love the big right.
0: ones. The what? The big ones. The big, the big ones. ones. Yeah. The Shakespearean <laughs> ones. Um, yeah. And so that's what she focuses on. It's eminently readable. It's not a dry chronological rundown of emperor to emperor because that's been done hundreds of times over, but it's kind of like a scholarly, I was thinking about this and I, whether I should say this out loud, cause it might do a disservice. Remember the show lives of the rich and famous with Robin Leach Sure. (laughs) For those of us of a certain age, Dave's trying to hold in his Mm -hmm. laughter. That's kind of what this book is is kind of like. It's an (laughs) eye-opening look at the lives, motivations, and foibles of an an emperor, often based on recently unearthed information. Um, Of course, we learn how so much that was... Was knowledge or legend today was created back then by successors who wanted to denigrate or celebrate the predecessors and now there was a lot of rewriting yeah. of history going on right in the time so it 's pulling that apart um, so for example, the first part of the book is an examination of what dinner with an emperor would have looked like, separating the kernels of truth from bucketfuls of legend, for instance, how often was it that it was true that a political rival would be poisoned at dinner, which is a Typical thing you hear about. Um, How often, when the capricious excesses of immature leaders surface, like the emperor who supposedly, at one dinner, watched as many of his guests died as a delightful shower of flower petals falling on the guests turned into a cruel avalanche, suffocating them to death. Um, This is a. This was accepted as truth for centuries and centuries and centuries, and she's beginning to poke into that. In truth, like any state dinner, they were highly choreographed and held in dining rooms that were designed to inspire. And a common feature in any classy Roman dining room was a water feature, such as a waterfall or a fountain or a grotto or a stream. They're learning this stuff recently. So now they're going back to places they've already excavated and Mm -hmm. saying, oh, this room that we thought was maybe a bedroom or something else is actually a dining room because it has this feature. So it's it's kind of, you know, for those of us who like history, kind of cool. She also touches on what power an emperor actually held. Many were untrained. Many were not entirely separate from the people who would make demands, especially at the chariot races where the emperor would be sitting not far from the hoi polloi. So you or me or Dave, um, Mm -hmm. Could just mm-hmm. walk up to an emperor and say, I want you to do this, or I need you to do that. You know, And they they had to kind of toe a line of public opinion as well as keep their military satisfied right. because their guards would sometimes murder them. <laughs> so, And then she also does stuff like she writes about what they did in their time off. So Commodus was an amateur gladiator. And she uses this as an opportunity to praise that movie Gladiator by Ridley Scott from a couple decades ago, because that's The movie that portrays this dude is remarkably more accurate than other gladiator films, which I thought was funny. Um, Many enjoyed horse racing. Hadrian and Marcus Aurelius took up painting. Others wrote poetry or played music. So you can think of Nero playing on his fiddle as Rome burned. Domitian liked to torture flies. He also wrote a book called On Care of the Hair, which he had very little of. (laughs) And he included a section on how to come to terms with baldness. So, you know, they were people, right? And and um, you just kind of learn some of these these foibles. Um, Claudius wrote a book about gambling, which he and, and loved as well. Um, and I'll leave you with this interesting tidbit. So emperors sponsored gladiator shows at the Colosseum, these big things, where, you know, gladiators would come out and fight and lions and mm-hmm. Christians, you know, put on the stake and all that kind of stuff. They did include public executions, of course. Um, but for the Emperor, they like to use the executions to restage famous bits of history or mythology there 's documents, documented ex- um, evidence of all this stuff, and she brings up one where you know an unwilling political prisoner of some sort is dressed up as Icarus, who is then made to fly too close to the sun by flinging him up and then he plummets to his actual death <laughs> to the amusement of everyone Did seeing... they set fire to his feathers or... <laughs> could have she also, say some of the other examples from their mythology have to do with fire, so many people were burned to death, you know. Wow. And this was to amuse the emperor. You know, I thought, wow, that was that would
2: be pretty funny.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Probably depends on how close you're sitting to the guy who's
1: going to plummet Splat. down.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but look, the book, um, I'm probably not doing it all the justice it deserves. It's It's got all these serious bits, but then all these kind of curious cultural things as well. And she brings in her own wit. There's a reason that she's got a following, both in literature and documentaries. Yeah, because that it could be very, very dry. Yes.
1: Right.
0: But yes. It's yeah. not Gibbons' rise and fall of the Roman Empire, right? It's something very, very different. And it's, I think it's a nonfiction bestseller. I haven't changed the list. Right? Yeah, yeah. There you go. I have a bookseller sitting right next to you. <laughs> Validating. Top 10. Top 10. There you go. It would actually, I shouldn't say this, but it actually would make a good holiday gift for people who are looking to shop for it, people.
1: It's a its a chunk. It's a chunk of a book. It's quite yeah. big.
0: You're staring at it. I am. Yeah, I bought it so yeah. that I could intimidate you. You didn't bring your books to intimidate did, me back. I so. did not. Um, but at any rate... Um, killing political prisoners in unwittingly panto ways brings me to my final book. This is a novel, a popular novel that I think many of our listeners will be familiar with. It just came out this year. It's called the last devil to die by Richard Osman, TV personality, writer, comedian, quiz show host over in Britain. Right? That is
2: correct.
0: (laughs) It's correct. Still. (laughs) Um, He's a great writer. Um, this is the fourth book in his popular Thursday Murder Club Mysteries, which started, I think, about four years ago, and they were bestsellers. It's typical of British cozy mysteries. It's set in the countryside. This kind is a, a, a retirement community, and it involves a small handful of residents of this community who get together every Thursday in the in the puzzle room of their retirement center and try to solve a mystery. Hijinks ensue. Um <laughs> The members are Elizabeth, Joyce, Ron, and Ibrahim. One is a former spy, one is a former nurse, one is a former union rabble rouser, and one is a psychiatrist. So they each bring their different skills Mm -hmm. to solving the mystery. Um... And this was the fourth one was supposed to be the last one. Osman said he was going to stop it for, but I think it's become so popular. He's no longer saying that he's just <laughs> going to say he's taking a break. So the plot of, of the last devil to die. And this comes from the publisher blurb is an old art collector friend has been killed and a dangerous package. He was protecting has gone missing. The gang's search leads them into the antiques business where the tricks of the trade are as old as the objects themselves as they encounter drug dealers, art forgers and, Online fraudsters, as well as heartache closer to home, they have no idea whom to trust. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Um, I just say, I love these books. I actually listen to them on an audiobook. These novels move at a very quick pace. They have great touches of humor and love and all the elements of murder, stealing, senior fraud, dementia and more. Osman says it's a story that combines the right amount of heart and murders, making it an enjoyable read, which is, I think, an apt description of this brief mystery novel. Again, I read these in audiobooks. So I'm going to recommend that format to listeners, especially if you're like us. We have to commute around the Sierras during the week. Famous English actress Leslie Manville narrates them. Um, listeners may know her from The Crown, World on Fire, or Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. I think were her three most recent mm-hmm. yeah recent things. Um, and then again, as I said, Osman was going to originally cap this series at four. Um, he's going to keep it going, but he's taking a break to start a new series, this one involving a father and a daughter-in-law who get hoodwinked into solving mysteries. Um, you know, it's the trope. Sure. Right? It's the mystery trope. Um, but this one is, they're not... Um, they're not slow. They're not disappointing. They're not overly disturbing. (laughs) Um, but they're not so, they're not like an Agatha Christie where they, they're just a little bit, there's too much tea going on, right? Right. There's actually some stuff going on in these books and each of the characters has their own kind of humorous take on things. So hugely entertaining.
1: And is it, are they solvable? Like, do you, do they keep you guessing right to the end or you know, do you pretty much know who done it?
0: Well, you know, I don't read a whole lot of mysteries. So I'm always impressed with any mystery writer who can kind of write a puzzle and then hide the solution Mm -hmm. until the very end of the book. Um, But I will say I got within three people this time. Like, okay, you know, as we were going along, yeah, exactly. There's three viable suspects here. And I I wasn't surprised at who ultimately was done it, but I enjoyed how... How awesome. it unfolded? Unfolded it.
2: Yeah. Reveal,
0: yeah, the reveal, reveal. Cool. Um, which was which was fun.
1: Now, do you have to read his uh, the other? Is each one a separate mystery of the four? You can read them independently.
0: Yeah, you can read yeah. them independently. Um, it helps if you like many series, especially mystery series. It helps if you kind of start at the beginning because you you develop your understanding of the characters along with the writer developing the character Mm -hmm. from book to book to book to book. So you kind of understand their relationships and foibles and what have you like that. And it's not a bad thing. They're four very enjoyable books. Again, like let's plug Holiday Shopping again. If you got a mystery reader who hasn't read these, you could probably buy the four of the set and they wouldn't be disappointed.
1: Cool. So repeat all three of your titles one more time for us.
0: Well, that one was The Last Devil to Die by Richard Osman. The first title was The World and All That It Holds by Alexander Heyman. And then the, uh, the middle one, the nonfiction, was Emperor of Rome by Mary Beard. Of course, we will have all of these on our
1: webpage. Awesome. Dave, you're up, sir.
2: Okay. Top that. Uh, there's no possible <laughs> way I could top that. That's uh, not possible, Christopher. Um, anyway, the um, my first choice, and I, I had trouble picking three because there were so many great books mm-hmm. this year. Mm-hmm. There were. Um, my first one is no surprise um, because I have picked a, a novel by... This author every time. <laughs> and he's one of my favorite authors. You better hope he keeps publishing. Oh, he is incredibly prolific. Okay. <laughs> he's written forty-nine um wow. books so far. Uh, and it is called um the author is Adrian Tchaikovsky. And the familiar. does sound familiar. <laughs> and um the title is Lords of Uncreation. And uh fortunately as I said, he is very prolific, and he came out with three different books this last year. Um he writes in all three genres: fantasy, hard sci-fi, and in this case, epic space wow. opera. So this this is the epic space opera, and it's um so it doesn't get any more epic than Lords of Uncreation. <laughs> this is the concluding chapter. In the monumental final architecture ser- trilogy. It's a very satisfying conclusion to a spectacular series. Um, I don't know. You I don't think you you've read it, have you? I but, have not okay. read it. So, Nor have I. Someone else in my house reads it's <laughs> on you. <so laughs> you may have read it. But Wills Wills likes it, right? Yeah. Okay. It's um so um it's The spectacular conclusion and the fate of all life is at stake. Uh, I won't tell you too much about the plot to avoid any spoilers, uh, but can give you a brief setup of it. So the final architecture trilogy is set in a future where all sentient life is threatened with extinction by the mysterious and incredibly powerful architects, not Those kind of architects, they don't do any um, uh, consulting or drafting or anything like that. So these architects are these moon-sized, crystalline beings who appear without warning out of unspace to refashion planets into what seem like works of art. And unfortunately, in the process, they kill every living thing on the planet. It seems like a byproduct of their making these works of art. And no one knows what motivates them to destroy the planets. They only know that they come from Unspace, which is a kind of hyperspace st- structure that under- underlies all of reality. Uh, you think think of Upside Down from Stranger Things. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, um, and it, and like the Upside Down, it's a very scary place inhabited by a creature that is the personification of pure terror, the stuff of nightmares. Um, the second book was almost a horror book. It was wow. kind of terrifying. Um, and so despite the existential planetary scale, <laughs> I'm, I'm re- <laughs> <it's> really, really, from my <laughs> Sorry. Uh, of events it is a very character-driven narrative focusing on the individual struggles of a scrappy band of outsiders and this is a pretty well-known trope for mm-hmm. them you've probably seen this before and they're both human and, and alien the format of the trilogy allows for extensive world building and character development and by the third, third book the reader is very heavily invested in the main protagonists. You've got to know them pretty well, uh, despite their many flaws. One of Tchaikovsky's trademarks is speculative evolution, and he populates his stories with many bizarre and interesting alien species. So part of Tchaikovsky's, I'm going to use the, his his name as many times as possible on this <laughs> uh, genius lies in creating empathy for creatures and species that are not obviously sympathetic, like the oversized giant spiders in mm-hmm. Children of Time, which he probably did read. Um, or maybe not. He didn't. Um, I can or, pretend with the yeah, best of them. I'm uh, sure Will's. So, did. So he's very good at... Um, uh, Getting the, the reader to 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 be empathetic towards these unusual creatures like sure. spiders or lawyers. Um, some of the some of the main protagonists are hive mind creatures, giant clams, genetically engineered or female um, super soldiers, or these crustacean like species that hire out parts of their bodies for ad space. <laughs> it's 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 it's. So is it bit, like satire or it's too? A little, slightly. It's a little bit out there, um, but we don't see we don't see many of the traditional sort of gun slinging heroes who come in and um, blast all the aliens or these evil aliens out the way. Um, in fact, the aliens are not necessarily the the evil ones um, <laughs> in this. Um, so I I feel I should have a, a defense of sci-fi because a lot of people don't really like it very much um, and a lot of people dismiss it as sort of escapist fluff um, but I think it's a misunderstanding of what the, the author is really trying to do a lot of the time um, sure they, they want to entertain but it's not so much a prediction of what the future may be like but a reflection a reflection of the present in a slightly different setting. So, uh, you know, it's important, I think, to take time to try to understand and have empathy for people that are very different from us. And this is a big theme throughout all his work. And he said that that is, that is something that he wants to introduce into it. So he's acknowledged that. He kind he, of he stated that publicly. He has mm-hmm. stated publicly that that's part of his... Um,
1: like, mission, yeah, mission.
2: <laughs> a mission. If he chooses to accept <laughs> yes. no, but uh, I,
0: I totally, agree. I think you would say the same thing, Stacey. I mean, we talk about palate cleansers and genre yeah. books all, all the time, but they do have a purpose, and they do are often great mechanisms or vehicles for building empathy or
1: understanding.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. So a lot of people won't read fiction because it's not real, right? But it can um shine a light on reality in a way that um fiction. Can't sometimes. Yeah. Um, And who doesn't like a scrappy outsider? Exactly. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Did that
0: start with Star Wars or were there authors doing that in space opera before Star Wars?
2: Uh, Battlestar Galactic, was that before? I think there was one. Anyway, so um, I realized that I'm not, uh, I'm making this sound a little boring, but it's not in any sense... It's, it's not a polemic or on multiculturalism. Um, it's an action-filled page-turner filled with edge-of-your-seat battles and really vivid characters. Humor, there's actually quite a bit of humor in it. Uh, twists and turns and big ideas. Um, it's just that it's also ultimately about the importance and power of empathy. Mm. Um, Ooh, nice. I would highly recommend it to anyone who likes fantasy or sci-fi or... To anyone who may be sci-fi curious,
1: <laughs>
2: perhaps you may have enjoyed a Star Wars I movie at sure. some point. Um, unless that movie was Phantom Menace, in which case there's no hope. <laughs> Nobody <you>.
1: enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: the last hope. <laughs> yeah. So, um, And that was Lords of Uncreation? That was Lords of Uncreation um, by Adrian Tchaikovsky.
0: <laughs> Who nice. writes three books He has a creative it's imagination crazy. if he's dreaming up crustaceans with ads on their yeah. bodies. Like that's crazy. Yes.
2: So I, I I like I've enjoyed every one of his books. Okay, so second book? Mm-hmm. Okay, this my the second my second pick is The Guest by Emma Klein. And Emma Klein is uh this is her second novel. Uh, she was really well known for um her first one was The Girls. I don't know if you read that one, but it was um it was a huge mm-hmm. book. She got yeah. a massive advance for it. Wow. Wow. And um it was her first first book. It was it was it was it was huge. I actually did not read it. Was
1: was The Girls the one about the Manson? Yes. Yeah, I loved that book. Okay.
2: Okay. Yes, I loved it. And you, yes. Mm-hmm. Loved so it. Y- you may like this too. <laughs> okay. I-, I wasn't sure if you would like this.
1: Okay, I can't wait to hear about it. Um,
2: so, uh, okay, the basic plot of The Guest is deceptively simple. It follows a week in the life of Alex, who is a 22-year-old escort from New York, a sex worker. She She's burned all of her bridges in the city and is desperate to escape. So she her roommates have thrown her out for stealing from them and not paying her rent. And she's being pursued by this shadowy, menacing character called Dom, who she also stole a bunch of drugs and money from. Um, So fortunately, she struck up a relationship with an extremely wealthy older man called Simon, who has invited her to his home in the Hamptons. Uh, Even though he may not be aware of her profession, it's clearly a transactional relationship. Hmm. Um, Like he buys her a lot of expensive dresses and so on. Mm -hmm. Uh, This seems to be the ideal solution to all of Alex's problems. Unfortunately, Alex screws up royally at one of the first uh, parties that she's invited to. She gets a little too drunk and ends up in a swimming pool with the husband of the hostess. Um, Oops. (laughs) And so Simon throws her out of his mansion and buys her a train ticket back to New York. Alex, however, has very few options and decides to stay on Long Island until Simon's big annual Labor Day party, uh, whereupon she fully expects to reappear and be forgiven. Mm. It's blindingly obvious to the reader that this is delusional and highly unlikely to work out well. <laughs> it's is <just laughs> not going to happen. So we're drawn into Alex's increasingly desperate plight, unable to look away as she makes one terrible decision after another, and leaving a trail of destruction in her wake. Alex is an agent of chaos, a wild card set loose into an extremely closed society designed to keep outsiders out. Uh, However, she does possess one useful superpower. She's very good at reading a room and becoming what other people want her to be. Mm. She's an adept shapeshifter and assumes a series of different personas as she Mr. Ripley's her way through East Coast Fine Society. <laughs> She's always the guest, although increasingly the unwelcome guest. So at the be- beginning of the week, it's all said in one week, wow. Alex almost, almost drowns in the ocean um, uh, after b- being caught in a riptide. And from then on, we get this impression of this woman frantically treading water to avoid drowning. It's a survival story, and Alex has a survival strategy or mechanism of basically ignoring her extreme peril. Uh, (laughs) That's one way to look at it. Yes. Partly through numbing her senses with her rapidly dwindling supply of painkillers, she's almost a non-person, a sort of reflective surface and imagines herself as a ghost or, this is a quote from it, a sort of inert piece of social furniture. Only her presence was required, the general size and shape of a young woman. I, I like her writing a lot. It's, yeah. kind of, it's, it's, it's pretty incisive. Um, so there's definitely class satire here. And Emma Klein makes some, some incisive commentary on the uber-wealthy. Um, so another quote, Everyone said it was beautiful out here. How many times could this sentiment be repeated? It was the polite consensus to return to, the bookend to every conversation. <laughs> Which we've all seen. That. Sure, we've all totally. Done um, she also unveils the huge effort that it takes to maintain this facade of perfection and serenity. Alex watches the army of gardeners descend on this Eden every day, uh, and this bit's a a quote again, every day clipping and pruning and mowing and raking and chlorinating the pools and all the rest. The violent assault that it takes to make it seem serene and frictionless. Um, And that, I really like the idea of gardening being a violent assault. Um,
1: <laughs> I would mean, never think of it like that, you know. but now I'll never get that image right. out of my head. Now you're going to
2: look at your berry bushes all differently, I know, right? I totally. Um, however, despite recognizing the absurdity and uh, the vacuous lives of the super wealthy, Alex has no desert, desire to change anything. She's curiously passive, lacking in ambition, and content to survive day-to-day, pill by mind-numbing pill. She's quick to recognize the desires of others, but doesn't seem to have any of her own beyond survival. We never really know her, partly because she doesn't seem to know who she is, just a series of personas that other people want her to be. Although Alex is a compelling protagonist, she's not a particularly likable character. So it's hard to empathize with her as the screws tighten and her world inevitably unravels. Wow. So, so can
1: I can yes. I ask is is because I think I might want to read this book, but mm. I want to know if if she is an unlikable character. What keeps the reader going? Like just you, just it's like a train wreck. You can't look away. <laughs> it, it
2: is a bit like that. Yes, you. Um, I'm here
1: for that. You get no, that's okay.
2: Just (laughs) drawn into this this world of hers. That yeah. No, please don't don't do that. Don't do that. And she just keeps doing it. Um. So I kind of get the the last little bit. Okay. I'm sorry if I. Oh no no no! Interrupt away. (laughs) Um. So if you were looking for an answer at the end, if you like tidy narratives and neat character arcs, you will be extremely disappointed. Okay. Um, there's no satisfactory conclusion, no epiphany, no happy ending. Um, Emma Klein not only challenges our perceptions of what a heroine should look like, she challenges our perceptions of how a book should end. It doesn't really end. Um, another thing of yours.
1: I'm so here for, I'm so here for this book. I can't (laughs) wait to
0: read it. Well, it makes me wonder, and sorry to interrupt you, Dave, Mm. it, it kind of feels like a play on the Pygmalion trope it's just unsuccessful.
2: Right. And, right.
0: And I does that ring true? Like
1: uh,
2: my fair lady?
0: My fair lady. Yeah. yeah. Um
1: my, my fair lady gone wrong.
0: Gone wrong just, multiple times. Yeah. You know, trying to be something other people want to define her as.
2: Yeah, I would, I yeah. hadn't hadn't really thought of that, but um I would say that's that's a reasonable analogy.
0: Yeah. And then my other question is you like her writing, Stacy? You like her yeah. writing? Is she like is she like a Patri- you you brought in the Patricia Highsmith reference there, Mr. Ripleying her way mm-hmm. across. Is she is she up there with Patricia Highsmith, do you think?
2: She I think some of um she was the, the, there was a short story by John Cheever, The Swimmer. I don't know if you I'm familiar with it, yeah. That one. Yeah. But that was kind of the basis for the, the start of her thinking for this, this character. Oh, okay. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's a bit like, um, that I, you know, it, it's, it's just the way she writes is just something I, I, I couldn't do. Um, and, and it really makes you, uh, appreciate. I, like, I really enjoy right. reading a sentence that is just, um, something I, I wouldn't be able to do. Um, so anyway, um, cool. if uh, where did I get to? I have some notes here, obviously. Um, so it's that that may seem like a big spoiler, but I didn't wouldn't have recommend a book to someone who wouldn't want to read it. Um, who would be there are uh, people hate this book, um, <laughs> and now as, that's if you sparks curiosity really like just the, a feel good rom com. Beach read with a happy ending. This this book may not be for you. My interest is big too.
1: Yeah. It's, it's just sometimes a train wreck is, you know, you, you just you can't look away. I mean, just your description. I'm like, I I've gotta see this.
2: Yeah. Read it. So the reason that I liked it, it was um after giving it such a negative review um it, i i tend to like books with a narrow almost claustrophobic focus almost like that short story vibe mm-hmm. um which this has and uh, the compressed time frame and the escalating sense of desperation also sucked me in uh, it's almost like a psycholo- psychological horror story mm-hmm. um and I, I enjoy inconclusive endings because you know life is messy and inconclusive right Mm -hmm. so uh but above all um emma klein writes really well um it's you know it's the kind that a a book that i would reread sentences because i just thought they were so good
0: Those are juicy reads. Yeah. I love, I love writers who do that. Me too. They bring that out in you and you're just like, I want to take time with this book because I'm enjoying the craft as much as the story.
1: Exactly. And, and probably the fact that it takes place over one week helps the reader get through this because you, it's going to end quick. I mean, it's going to, it's a quick read. It's it's definitely
2: a quick read, but I could see why some people do not like the ending. Sure.
1: Okay, I will read it, I'll get back to you. Okay. The okay. interest like the I'm the ending the ending person. Yeah. So <laughs> endings are important to me. Not that I'm not you know, I I appreciate what you're saying about this book and I'm just curious to yeah. I, to dive in. I'm curious yeah. what you think just of just it stop
2: is. before you get to the last paragraph and you'll be fine. <laughs> Um, (laughs) that's like the Grover book don't turn the page page. (laughs) yes yeah i thought of that actually (laughs) is it it the monster at the end of the book The monster monster at at the end end of the book book. yeah yeah Yeah. oh dear we're all over the place with this recommendation that's a great one okay um do i have enough time i've I've rambled on a bit
1: you've got one more to go
2: all right so um my last pick is the wager by david gran um and the, the Wager is the latest book by David Grant, author of Killers of the Flower Moon, oh. which is another excellent and highly readable nonfiction story. I think it was one of my picks a couple of years ago as well. I think so, too. Yep. Um, on the surface, The Wager looks like a classic sea yarn. After all, its full title is The Wager, A Tale of Shipwreck, Mutiny, and Murder. I guess he isn't too concerned about giving away the plot on this <laughs> one. But um, even the cover looks like a Rousings sort of boy's own maritime adventure. However, in David Grant's hands, it is more than that. Um, the Wager is the name of a British warship taking part in the War of Jenkins' Ear, uh, which happens to be the best uh, named war in history. <laughs> um, Jacob's ear? Jenkins, ear, Jenkins, or Jenkins' ear. ear. Okay, Jenkins. never heard okay, of it. I've
1: never heard of it either. Ooh.
2: Yeah. Um, so basically, it's just a, a land grab between the Spanish and British empires to see how much much of the New World they could steal and plunder. So, in 1740, His Majesty's ship, the Wager, set sail along with a fleet of ships across the Atlantic. Their covert mission is to intercept a Spanish treasure treasure ship off the coast of Chile, plundering the plunderers, as it were. So David Gran makes meticulous use of contemporary accounts, particularly the sailors' logbooks and diaries, to reconstruct the extremely arduous daily conditions aboard a ship during the mid uh, 18th century. Life at sea is pretty terrifying and for many, very short. Men could die at any moment from rogue waves, disease, or a multitude of other hazards. By the time that the fleet reaches Cape Horn, which is a notorious deadly stretch of water, actually the the stretch of water is the Magellan Straits right Uh, a large part of the crew are dead Mm. they then have to endure incredible hardship as the fleet is pounded by hundred foot waves and the strongest currents on earth on top of this they're also suffering from typhus and the horrendous illness uh, scurvy Um, Grand doesn't pull any punches when relating the debilitating effects of scurvy as and this is a quote from him uh, as the scourge invaded the sailors' faces, some of them began to resemble the monsters of, of their imaginations. Their bloodshot eyes bulged, their teeth fell out, as did their hair. More sailors died from a lack of vitamin C, vitamin C, sorry, and from than from all the other horrors combined. It was it was a pretty awful.
0: Did you thing. put down your cup of tea
2: <laughs> when you read that sentence? <laughs> <laughs> so, um. The wager, so the, the, the ship, the wager, barely limps through the Strait of Magellan. And by this stage, the fleet has been torn apart. The men desperately try to make it to Robinson Crusoe Island, but are shipwrecked on a remote island off the Patagonian coast, salvaging whatever they can from the wreckage. At this point, the real struggle for survival begins, and the central mystery uh, begins to take shape and th- this isn't giving away mm-hmm. anything really because he tells you this right at the start. So there are two central figures in the ensuing drama, the captain, David Cheap and the ship's gunner, John Boltley, both vying to win the loyalty of the 145 remaining survivors. There's pretty much a complete breakdown in order, starvation, theft, warring factions, murder, s- certain amount of cannibalism. And, um, possible mutiny. Eventually, some of the survivors make it back to England through extreme and harrowing privation where they are court-martialed. So, um, seems a bit harsh. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, David Graham expertly sifts through the conflicting accounts to arrive at the truth behind the story. However, the actual mystery itself of who is to blame and whether it's a mutiny or not... Um, whether it took place, is almost not as important as the actual fact of their survival under such incredible and extreme duress. As ever, David Grand weaves together an absorbing, engaging narrative from the exhaustively researched and often contradictory contemporary accounts, and diaries and logs and so on. He also weaves in many other nautical stories, Including Melville, Defoe, mm. Coleridge, and so on, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. He talks about the um, sort of the power of storytelling as well in it. Um, and there's so there's little glamour or romance in Grant's tale the the Doomship and its ill-advised mission, but there's much to admire in the courage, self-sacrifice, and perseverance of the crew. Uh, not all of the crew, mind you, um, in the face of seemingly uns- insurmountable. Hardship. Uh, it's not a simple tale of seafaring adventure. Grand rightly highlights other elements that are just as much a part of the tale the folly of empire, racism, and greed among them. However, in doing so, he also re- recognizes the spirit of curiosity, valor, and adventure that was such a large part of the age. Right. That is it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> A lot of people have been checking this book out from the library. And some. The, I re- read the reviews when it came out. I haven't read the book yet, although I had it on my summer read list. It's described as a, a suspenseful page turner. Mm-hmm. Is it is it up there with is David Grant up there with Eric Larson or some of those yeah. others who just like take this and yeah. and make Abso- it could it be a novel.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You you read it? No, I, I didn't, uh, yeah. but I'm wondering, is he similar like I love Eric Larson and he sounds kind of
2: similar? Definitely. Um you know, in, in the same way, similar way, he draws on a lot of contemporary Mm accounts and kind of weaves them together into, into a really readable narrative. It it is definitely a a page turner. Um, and, um, yeah, I think he's a really good author. I like him.
1: Does he always, I'm sorry. Does he always write about like, shipwreck kind of or does no, he tell he, other
2: stories no well the last one w- that he wrote was um the killers of the flower moon which is oh
1: the uh, native americans yeah yeah
2: really really good investigative mm-hmm. um reporting um and he, he did a great job with that too uh, he's kind of seems to find stories about people who are a little too invested in whatever they're Mm -hmm. doing in a sort of dangerous way, maybe. Um, Yeah, but he's, um, I would highly, highly recommend it to people who like Eric Larson for sure.
0: And a lot of people just like seafaring shipwreck stories and the ship of gold in the deep foo sea that came out a number of years ago. There's the Shackleton stories, which are, you know, you know, it's that kind of, these people went into the unknown Mm -hmm. and you're trying to understand what they went through Right. And the or things he... that they
2: went to, through. Yeah. yeah. Are just, exactly. Uh, Mind blowing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, Surviving those survive. conditions. Yeah. It's yeah. exciting. Thank you, Dave. Can you remind us of your three titles and their authors one more time, please?
2: Um, I think so. <laughs> so the first one was Adrian Tchaikovsky, okay. and the um title of the book was Lords of Uncreation. Which was the third in the trilogy. Um, the second one was *The Guest* by Emma Klein. and the third one was *The Wager* by David Gren.
1: Excellent, thank you so much. Awesome,
2: Ooh, thank you. So, Stace, now we're down to you.
1: My turn. Okay, you have so to top
0: both of us now. I,
1: I don't think I can do that. I but you I, can. I think I will. I think I will offer three alternative types of. <laughs> Titles as I usually do when we I get love it. to no, this that's awesome part that's what makes of it the beautiful. year.
2: Variety is
1: great. Yeah, it's the spice of life, right? <laughs> exactly. So, okay, so I will start with Hello Beautiful by Anne Napolitano. Uh, This was published on March 14th of 2023, and um, many of our listeners will have read her last book and and many of our others. Her last book was Dear Edward, which was made into a television show on one of the apps, but I don't know which one. Um, But Hello Beautiful is about the Padovano family. They have four daughters. They're a Catholic family. They live in Chicago. They're a very close-knit family. And their four daughters are named Julia, Sylvie, Cecilia, and Emmeline. And they are very close. And this is the story of their, when they, uh, them growing up and the the directions their lives turn while at the same time how they interact and stay close knit or or don't as as it happens so julia is the oldest and she leaves home to go to college and she an oldest child she's she's very driven she's very ambitious and she meets william who is a basketball star the college that they're at and she immediately sees her their whole life together and she sets her sights on William determines that she, for him that he is going to be an English professor at the college one day and she is going to be a mother and a journalist and all the things and just has this is her course that she set for herself she never really takes into consideration that William has had a very different upbringing than she has. He has been terribly neglected by his parents. He has a lot of um mental health issues. He deals with with depression and and anxiety and you know like crippling mm-hmm. depression. But she doesn't see any of this. They get married. And she brings him into her family, and he cannot escape these other three <laughs> women because, you know, he's in it now. And they're, they're, they see their mission is making him part of the family, and whatever they do, he's a part of it. So there have been lots of comparisons to this book to Little Women, Oh. You know, you you understand the four daughters. You know, the whole, they were not wealthy. They're, um, they're very poor. To me, I, and I didn't, I didn't do any research into seeing you know, why people were making, drawing that comparison beyond mm-hmm. the four daughters, because I love the book, Little Women. I've read it a million times. And I, ju- I didn't want to spend this whole book compare looking for those comparisons. Right. And so from my point of view, I didn't really see it. Uh, I didn't, beyond the f- them, there being four girls in the family, I didn't really see a whole lot of comparison. One of them doesn't die of consumption. I, I... Yeah. D- I, yeah, I'm. I don't want to give any spoilers <laughs> away, but no, nobody dies of consumption. I can I can share that without giving without ruining anything. But you know, as the story goes on, the you know I would say the first third really focuses on Julia and her meeting William and building their relationship, and then when after they get married, she brings him home, then it kind of takes on dealing with the other, the other girls and, Mm -hmm. and their parents a a little bit more and goes more into each of their lives. And then when they have children, those children's lives as well. So it's, it's very, it spans a a number of decades. So is
0: it contemporary or is it set early?
1: It's (laughs) set in the, in the last century. I can say that. (laughs) Right in the 1900s, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. so um, it's I, I would say it starts kind of in the the 50s, okay, um, and then moves through um to the turn of the of the century.
0: But it so, sounds like also like a really meaty family saga, and people love those y- books. It, right? it
1: really is, and these you will. Th- I mean, for me, this. These characters, they stayed with me for a while after I I read it. I kept thinking about them. And maybe because, you know, I have a sister and I know what that relationship is like and my husband has sisters and Mm -hmm. I know what their relationship is like. So reading about this how these sisters interact with each other was really interesting. And then, you know, I grew up in Chicago and the whole, a lot of the story takes place in Chicago, not all of it, but a lot of it. So that was kind of fun. Um, You know, oh, I know where that street is and you know, that kind of thing. Um, But, you know, she does, she does such a good job of building these characters and building their relationships And everything that they go through without becoming maudlin or over the top, you know, it's not sappy on any level. It's not
0: tree grows in Brooklyn. It's
1: no, not at at all. It's just a real, and you know, and it's not even, I wouldn't even call it, I wouldn't call it heartwarming either. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are not perfect characters, you know, Um, none of them are. Um, It's just, it's just interest, really interesting.
0: It kind of reminds me a little bit, you know, uh, the other kind of popular family saga that came out this year about an outsider coming into the family was Pineapple Street. Yes, yeah. Does it relate? Is this a heavier book?
1: Interestingly enough, I read Pineapple Street immediately after I read... Hello, beautiful. And so the, you know, I got, i get them mixed up a, a lot because there was, there was a little bit of overlap there. It was hard to read one and then the other. Right. I would say they're, they are on equal footing in terms of, of drama and, um, you know, pathos and, mm-hmm, and, and mm-hmm. all of that. Mm-hmm. So, um, but whereas pineapple street really focused a lot more on the class system and right. somebody from outside of their class coming in you know to a higher class that was really the the grounding of that this was much more um family driven and the fact that the that they were a poor family it didn't it it didn't play into it at all there wasn't any of that piece in there. So I think they're different in that, yeah, that right. regard, but I, I, I had a hard time not picking pineapple street for this, I'm sorry, Pineapple Street. I really like that book too. <laughs> so, so that was Hello Beautiful by Anne Napolitano. My next pick, I'll do another nonfiction, then my last is a another fiction, and then okay. my last is a nonfiction. So the next recommendation that I have is called California Golden. It's by Melanie Benjamin. It was published in August on August 23rd of, of this year. And 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 I'll 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 quote the summary from from Good Goodreads, mm-hmm. Southern California, nineteen sixties, endless sunny endless sunny days, surfing in Malibu followed by glittering neon nights at Whiskey-A-Go-Go. In an era when women are expected to be housewives, Carol Donnelly is breaking the mold as a legendary female surfer, struggling to compete in a male-dominated sport, and her daughters, Mindy and Ginger, bear the weight of her unconventional lifestyle. So that sets up the the whole plot. It really, Carol as a character doesn't really come into the middle third of the book. Okay. Um, the first section is really focusing on, on Mindy and, and Ginger and their teenagers when the book opens up and uh, Mindy has become a very good girl surfer and as such she's tapped to be the surfer girl in all the beach blanket movies if you remember <laughs> those of course you two are younger than me maybe you don't
0: remember. No, i do frankie avalon those, or that finicello the,
1: and the gidget the gidget you know, movies gidget movies so so mindy is is the surfer girl in those m- movies ginger her younger sister who she basically raises um, doesn't like surfing, doesn't like the ocean, but is stuck in this environment. And so the story actually kind of takes place from about the 60s all the way through the 80s. And just how the girls navigate um, the surfing culture, the California during that time, Mindy ends up going out, having all these adventures, these opportunities that she's given because she is this surfer. Ginger takes a very different path, gets involved in, in a cult. Um, and, you know, and then of course it examines their relationship with their mother, which is problematic at best because, you know, the mother has always been all about surfing. That's her whole, always been just her whole thing. And, um, when we get to hear her story in the middle third of the novel, you do get to develop some empathy for Carol. But up until you, up until that point, you're like, this woman is horrible. <laughs> she had these kids and, you know, she's not paying attention to them. And, you know, so, but you, you do get to see a different side of her. So,
0: you know, I, I, Uh, You know the title I'm going to ask you about. How does it compare to Malibu Rising?
1: Totally different. Totally, totally different vibe. Totally different... trajectory of the story this is really 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 focused on surfing is almost a character in this novel mm. whereas in Malibu rising it was something they did that yeah. was how their family got together that was how they talked about their problems in this book it is surfing is their their life to a greater um, extent you know it's 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 who they are and so you really do get to see. Through this novel, what that cult, the beginning of that culture was like um, back then. So I thought it was, that was really cool. I was very intrigued about that.
0: Does it do as what I liked about Malibu Rising was that it created an atmosphere of Malibu in those days, the 70s, 70s, or 80s, or whatever yeah. it was. You could taste the salt air, you could hear the music. Does this, does this, Def, flip you that?
1: definitely, yeah. you definitely get that aspect of of what it's like and how they, they live on the beaches. They, you know, they sleep out overnight because the swells coming in the next day and they want to be the first ones on it. And, you know, my husband was a big surfer when we lived in San Diego. So I, I know what that's like, because, you know, would never miss a big swell if there, you know, if there were good, the the surf was good. He was going to do whatever he could to be out there and, you know, kind of relive that again, through these characters and how surfing determined, you know, what they did on a given day, whether there was surf or not. So it was, it was really, I loved, I loved this book. It was really great. Really great. Are people buying it, Dave? Uh,
2: yes. Yeah. 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 It's a popular book. I, I haven't read it yet, but, um, I think I will now. Sounds great. It's, it's,
1: it is really, it's really good. And it's not just like a chick's book. You know, right. it's any any right. anybody can enjoy this for sure. Um, and then the last book that I have, this is my nonfiction pick for the year and it's called Outlive, The Science and Art of Longevity by Dr. Peter Atia and Bill Gifford. This was also published in March of 2023. And I actually listened to this book, but I'm gonna go over to the bookie joint to buy a hard copy because I wanna have it on my shelf to refer to. Mm-hmm. So... Some of our listeners, you might be watching the Blue Zone series on Netflix that Dan Butner's doing. And he talks about the the Blue Zone people who live to be 100, you know, in, in these Blue Zone parts of the world. Well, Outlive takes kind of another turn on longevity and what Doctor Atia talks about is how we shouldn't just be thinking about living to a hundred, but living in such a manner, living longer in such a manner where we have our our mental faculties and our physical faculties, and how can you how can you maximize the quality of your life when you get to those later years? And as somebody who is fast approaching those later years, I was very interested in in what he had to say. So he he coins this term health span, which means living for longer years at a higher quality and then kind of goes through how he recommends that you do this and the research that he's done and what he's seen from centigenarians that he's interviewed and talked with and Actually, chapter four of the book is all about the centenarians. So these are people who have le- lived to be one hundred or more. And he actually, there's actually a group of people called super centenarians, wow. and they are people who've lived to be over one hundred ten. And there's actually a good number of people that have achieved that. And it, it that was every every five minutes that I was listening to this, I. Stop the book and go, Joe. That's my husband. Joe, listen to this. Blah 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 blah. It was just. It was so fascinating to me that 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 could be the case. So you know, it's like goals. I'm <laughs> so, shooting for that.
0: So, so all I can think of is like you know we get these news stories of so and so you know reached 102 and then they ask her or him what the trick was and it's like you know a shot of scotch every day right. or something like that. Is there a new habit or something or behavior that you? from the reading this that you're going to start applying? So
1: it was really interesting that all of these people that he interviewed and that he talked to that have achieved this goal and have this, this amazing health span, there wasn't one thing that worked for all of them other than they generally had ancestors who had lived long mm. lives. And not necessarily to 100, but long for their, for their time that they were alive. That was like one common predictor. But that said, there are, you know, he does recommend things that you can do to help increase that. And, you know, of course, he says, the sooner you start, you know, eating appropriately and, you know, hydrating and exercising, the the longer you have to, um, you know, the, the better your chances that you're going to live this long life. The one thing that I thought was really interesting is when he got to the chapters on exercise, mm-hmm. I made me wonder: How does he do all of this? He has a podcast. He writes these books. He's a do- he's a medical practicing physician. How do you do all those things when it seems like all you do is exercise? <laughs> he does a lot of exercising, and I was like, I want to have that. I want to do that. I want to have that much many hours in a day to to exercise, but. Um, So that was a little, a little questioning for me is how, you know, he does not go into how he fits it all in, in in a day for him as a working professional. Sure. Um, But, you know, it's aspirational that, you know, it's Mm -hmm. something to strive for. Can
2: I ask, is there, is there something on dementia in it? Because, you know, the the point was that um, your quality of life should be maintain a similar level as right. you get older and right. that's one of the big things that, um i think as people have started living longer the incidence of dementia is is, is a lot higher yes. because of that um does it does he go into that he, at all
1: he goes into it a little bit in terms of when he speaks about the four horsemen which are the four areas of um illness i, I i'll say um that generally cause us to, to die young, and those, those are cancer, metabolic syndrome, Alzheimer's, and, and brain uh, degenerative diseases, and cardiovascular disease. So he does, he does talk about that, and does, he does mention that as we are living longer, the incidences of, of mm. these diseases are increasing, but he also says that we also now do a better job of diagnosing it. And, and then he will, he also, he talks about this one woman and I can't remember her, her name right now, Sally, maybe. And she, he uses her as an example throughout the book and how she was a very active person in her late sixties. She, you know, she gardened every day, she read, she walked places, the whole, you know, had great relationships, lots of friends. Mm -hmm. And then she had an accident And fell and broke her hip. And that just started a spiral of, you know, of a downward trajectory for her. And so he talks about how we need to be, you know, preparing now so that we don't break a hip, you know, that if we have tendencies for osteoporosis, we need to be addressing that early on so that it doesn't become a trajectory factor right. in causing us to decline. And it was, it, you know, I, like I said, I listened to this, this book and it was very listenable. He, he, you know, he had a really good mix of like stories, examples with the science so that you didn't get like all of this, all bogged down in the science-y, right. you know, studies and, and all of that. He made it very easy to listen to. And I would guess that, you know, from his podcast, he's kind of learned how to balance information with keeping people's attention.
2: Just like you.
1: Thank you. I what? hope so.
0: <laughs> what? What are we talking about? <laughs> um no, I can't help but think of the earlier comment you meant which was kind of like a work-life balance thing, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm not so good with the food. I try, but you know, I'm always one who will succumb to, you know, a good baked brownie or, you know, piece of cake or something, ice cream. Um, but I love exercise. I have a routine for exercise mm-hmm. and if I don't do it, um, you know, the rest of my day is screwed up, and then I would like to do more, but I'm very cognizant that my day is already very full, right? And I need to make time for home because mm-hmm. that's a valuable part of right. life too. And and so I do kind of wonder, like, what are the trade offs? Right? Well, what do, and- I, do I do a buy treadmill for the office? Like, what what is the thing that we need to be doing?
1: Right? And he doesn't really give a prescription. You know, for that it's almost like he has a menu, right mm-hmm. you know he gives a menu here's what you should be eating here's here are some things about exercise and you know my my friend carrie um Carrie Sokol shout out to you <laughs> She recommended this book to me, and we you know we grappled with it you know we as we were both reading it about how about the exercise piece right and and there at one point he talks about the need to have. Um, like hit high intensity interval training. That that's really important. But then he also goes into oh, but you also have to have the long sustained right. zone two kind of training yeah. as well. So it's like okay, well, how do you, you know? So Carrie and I oh, we'll, we'll we'll ride our pelotons. We'll do this ride on one day and we'll do this other kind. Right. And you know those hit classes make me throw up. So it's <laughs> like uh, that's too much for me. But you know, I I think the, the idea is that, you know, that the fact that we can live longer, more healthy, productive lives is, you know, an attainable one for a lot of us. And, you know, just that the, it's an area of study I'm so fascinated by because, you know, I as somebody who's getting older and. I want to make this last third of my life as fun and productive as possible. And it's nice to know that, you know, living to 100 isn't, it's not that far off, right. you know. So that is Outlive, The Science and Art of Longevity by Peter Atia.
0: Awesome. What were your three titles?
1: Um, The other two were California Golden by Melanie Benjamin and Hello Beautiful by Anne Napolitano.
0: So three great books. Great choices. Lots
1: of fun. Lots of fun.
0: And listeners, of course, you don't have to have written any of these down. We'll have them on our website, oxygenstarvedpodcast.com, as well as our Instagram account, o2starved. Dave of The Bookie Joint.
1: Always a pleasure.
0: Always a pleasure. Mm-hmm. Thank you for for joining
2: us with your always, excellent. Always a edition. pleasure for me too. Thank you. It's
1: really fun. I've, can't wait for I have year six. It.
2: I know we can't wait for year six <laughs> and, and what Tchaikovsky will
1: um, <laughs> yeah. have published his new, in 2024. his new series. <laughs>
2: Yeah,
0: it's a it's a guarantee. <laughs> it is a guarantee. We could it's pretty we need that kind of consistency in life. Um again, Bookie Joint, an excellent indie bookstore found in Mammoth Lakes. You can find these books there or order them there or at the libraries. We'll make sure there are copies in the Mono County Library system as well. And uh thank you, producer Doug, for getting us to the fifth version of our top picks of a year. I feel like this is a milestone.
1: It it kind of is.
0: I think it's awesome. I yeah. love these lists because they come out at the end of the year and we all have opinions on them, you know, and we're all smiling politely at each other right now. But I'm sure when we go our separate ways, we're like, oh, it's that book, whatever, you know, but no, I'm not I'm teasing. <laughs> not me.
1: <And laughs> no, but listeners, we want to hear what your three best books yeah, of the year absolutely. were. So, um, you know, let us know. Hit us up on Instagram or at our website, Yeah, We we really do love hearing from you We
0: genuinely do And um, have a wonderful and safe holiday season We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode Where we're going to talk a little bit about where we find our books Can't wait Can't wait Have a wonderful day
1: Stay safe
0: Thanks for joining us here for Oxygen Star. Our outro music, Iron Bacon, is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod. In Competech.com, Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 License.